Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Kevin Davis. And I'm Erwin Chemerinsky. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. We're starting off our day two of ABA annual coverage here correctly, right, I would say. I have a wonderful guest joining us here. I have a co-host, Kevin Davis from the ABA Journal, joining us for the first time, I think, on the air with Legal Talk Network. And I have one of my legal heroes, Dean Irwin Chimarinsky, joining us as well. So, Gentlemen, before we get started, why don't we start with your bios? Kevin, I'm going to start with you because you're the co-host. Uh, where do you, oh, Obviously, you work at ABA Journal, but what do you do for them? So uh, I'm one of the assistant managing editors for the ABA Journal, and uh, I am in charge of uh, Supreme Court coverage. Um, that means that we have uh, a monthly column um, in the print magazine, and then, of course, Dean Chemerinsky uh, writes a monthly column for us as well. Excellent. And Erwin? I'm Erwin Chemerinsky. I'm the Dean and Jesse H. Chopra, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. And I'm someone who writes for Kevin Davis. Excellent. So I have a little bit of a disclaimer. So Erwin's uh, actually a legal hero of mine. I just want to get that That's out. That's so sweet of you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I've been learning from you for years, sir. I, you know, even before I went to law school, I would listen to a lot of your back and forth conversations with uh, Dr. John Eastman. And I'll tell you what, I learned a lot, not just in your agreements, but a, a lot more in your disagreements. And so, I, you know, I appreciate that. And of course, we had your, uh, your constitutional law book in law school. And then um, you were very instrumental in me passing the bar. You're a Barbary professor. And I got to say, and, and this is, uh, you know, I know I don't want to embarrass you, but very few professors have that ability to really take a complex subject and uh, distill it down to something very simple. So thank you, sir, oh, for what you, you do. Oh, you're so very kind and generous. <laughs> thank you. So anyway, I wanted to let everybody know that. So I'm really happy that we thank have Erwin join us today. But we've got a big subject to talk about, a complex topic. Erwin, uh, did you write the title of this session? I did not, though I'm very honored to be invited to participate in this session at the ABA convention. Okay, well, it is, uh, it's got some loaded words in there, so I'm going to read it off here. It's blockbuster Supreme Court decisions in a partisan era maintaining public trust and institutional legitimacy. So a couple of magic words jumping out at me, Supreme Court, partisan public trust. So why don't we start from the beginning? Let's get the 50,000 foot. Uh, what was this generally about? Or what is it going to be generally about? It's a panel that's going to include Donald Varelli, the former Solicitor General of the United States, and Canon Shanmugam, who is a former Deputy Solicitor General and a Supreme Court practitioner. And it's looking at the Supreme Court at a time when our society is more polarized than ever, and looking at it at a time following a term which had so many blockbuster decisions, almost all of which came down in a conservative direction. And so what do you uh, anticipate in the year to come? Of course, we're going to have uh, confirmation hearings for uh, Judge Kavanaugh. And um, right now, is, as you know, the vetting process is getting really deep. I would expect that Judge Kavanaugh is likely to be confirmed by the Senate. In order for the Democrats to block him, they would need to get at least one Republican to switch. That's assuming John McCain doesn't participate. And every Democratic senator from a red state to vote against him. At this stage, that seems unlikely. Even if the Democrats were to block Brett Kavanaugh, it only has an effect if the Democrats take the Senate in November. Because otherwise, it's a Pyrrhic victory. Because if it's not Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump will nominate somebody just as or more conservative. So I think we're likely to see on the first Monday of October 
all nine seats on the court filled with the newest justice being Brett Kavanaugh. You know, I've uh, I, I realized that the, uh, the the selection of a Supreme Court justice is you know obviously very it has a lot of impact with our with our country. And I will say, even though I think maybe Joe and Joanna Q. Public, you know, maybe doesn't uh, register uh, necessarily as being more or less contentious to them personally, it certainly does come out in the press, but. In terms of politicizing the process, uh, you guys wrote a wonderful article uh, in which you talked about uh, Judge Merrick Garland's nomination, sort of steering kind of a a new unprecedented action that came in there. So the Senate said that it would hold uh, the hearings and there would be no vote on the nominee. never happened in history. 24 times in American history, there was a vacancy during the last year of a president's term in office. In 21 of those 24 instances, the Senate confirmed. In three instances, the Senate didn't confirm. But never before in history, prior to 2016, had the Senate said, no hearings, no vote on a president's nomination. I think Democrats will always regard this as a stolen seat on the court and one that's going to have an effect on constitutional law for decades to come. Well, this has, uh, you know, an impact on the second two years of a presidency, correct? So now at this point, if you have a Senate majority and a president that are not of, of the same party, it's unlikely in the second two years that they'll be able to get a nominee through. That's exactly right. I think from now on, if the president and the majority of the Senate are of different political parties, the president is not getting anyone confirmed in the last two years in office. So, for example, if the Democrats were to take the Senate in November 2018, President Trump would not get anyone nominated for the Supreme Court and maybe for the Court of Appeals confirmed during the last two years in office. Of course, at this stage, it seems uncertain at best that the Democrats can take the Senate, given the electoral realities. I gotcha. I just have a quick follow-up on that, too, because this happened very uh, quickly after. And again, uh, based on the article that you, you guys wrote together, uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination, uh, this is the first time a filibuster was used on a Supreme Court nominee. Now, what's the impact of that? Never before in American history had there been an actual filibuster or Supreme Court nomination. In October 1991, there were 48 votes against the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, but the Democrats didn't filibuster. In January 2006, there were 42 votes against the confirmation of Samuel Alito, but the Democrats didn't filibuster. The Democrats chose to filibuster the nomination of Neil Gorsuch. I think this because they wanted to express their view that this is a stolen seat on the court. Republicans then changed the Senate rules to eliminate the possibility of a filibuster for Supreme Court nomination. Of course, the Democrats did the same thing with regard to nominations for federal district court and courts of appeals, eliminating the possibility of a filibuster when Barack Obama was president. It then means that the minority party really has no way to stop a Supreme Court nomination. I think this, too, is going to have long-term effects. I think it's going to mean that both Republican and Democratic presidents can pick more ideologically extreme nominees, knowing that there's no chance of a filibuster from the minority party. So uh, speaking of of looking back, I'd like to talk about this uh, term that had just ended because uh, there are blockbuster cases, and uh, I think it would we'd like to understand the 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 long term um, repercussions of some of these decisions. And also, um, you have a column coming up for us in the ABA uh, Journal about some of the sleeper cases that you mentioned. It's hard to remember a term that has many potential blockbuster cases as October term two thousand seventeen. Some turned out not to be blockbusters. In Gill versus Whitford, the court didn't consider the constitutionality of partisan gerrymandering, instead saying that the plaintiffs failed to prove standing. 
in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the court didn't decide whether a business establishment has a right under free exercise or free speech to refuse to serve particular customers. On the other hand, there still were plenty of blockbuster cases. In Trump versus Hawaii, the Supreme Court 5 to 4 upheld the constitutionality of President Trump's travel ban. In Janice versus American Federation, the court 5 to 4 held that no longer can non-union members be required to pay agency fees, the so-called fair share, the part of the union dues that go to support collective bargaining. In National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra, the court 5 to 4 struck down a California law that required that those facilities by reproductive health care notify women about the availability of free and low-cost abortions and contraceptives, and that unlicensed facilities inform women that they're not licensed to provide health care in the state. In Carpenter versus United States, the Supreme Court held 5 to 4 that before police can obtain stored information about cellular location, they need to be able to get a warrant. Those are cases that are going to have a real effect on people's lives. I have a follow-up on that. You know, given the gravity of the First Amendment's emphasis there, you know, with the masterpiece, and also I think uh, uh, with the union case uh, that, that you just mentioned, you know, and, and you have reproduction, I found it interesting that uh, in an article, again, that you guys wrote together, that uh, you called the travel ban perhaps the most important case of the session. Well, why was that? I think it was the most important case of the session. Now, if you think about it in terms of people's lives, this gives the president very broad authority to keep people from being able to come into the United States. I think the longer-term significance of the case that hasn't really gotten enough media attention is Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion says that when it comes to presidential decisions as to immigration, only what's called rational basis review is to be used. That means the president's actions have held if they're rationally related to a legitimate government purpose. Under rational basis review, the government's actual purpose doesn't matter. There only has to be a conceivable legitimate purpose. So in this case, President Trump's actual motivation, a Muslim ban became irrelevant. All that was needed was a conceivable legitimate purpose, and the court said that's national security. But this then means there's going to be enormous deference to presidential decisions with regard to immigration. They only have to meet rational basis review. Almost everything meets rational basis review. So uh, you mentioned partisanship in, in the nation. It's a very divisive time. The next term, the court is going to uh, be dealing with um, some other big cases that will go along partisan lines. Can you give, give us a preview of some of the things that you uh, are anticipating in the next term? Well, let me start with an issue that the court hasn't yet granted, but the cert petition is there, and I expect they will. And that's whether employment discrimination based on sexual orientation violates Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Title VII prohibits employment discrimination based on race, sex, or religion. A couple of circuits have now held that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. Other circuits have come out the other way, so I expect the court will take it. As the courts where the case where the court is granted, there's a case called Gundy versus United States that involves whether or not a federal statute, the Sex Offender Registration Notification Act, is an unconstitutional delegation of power. Many believe that the court's prepared putting many more constraints on administrative agencies. No federal law has been struck down as an unconstitutional delegation since 1936. Will the court revive that? And I've got to talk about a case that I'm going to argue in the Supreme Court the first week of January, a case called Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt. 
This is actually the third time this case has been in the Supreme Court. The issue before the court is whether it should overrule a 1977 precedent, Nevada versus Hall, that allows a state government to be sued in another state's courts. This case was before the Supreme Court two years ago, and the justices split four to four on that question. It went back to the Nevada courts, and now the Supreme Court has granted cert again. So I want to take the, the discussion in a little bit different direction. I want to focus on the partisan and public trust of these decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. So let me ask a very loaded question. So how much of the justices' ideology plays into their decision-making, do you think, Erwin? Now and always through American history, ideology plays an enormous role in decisions, especially in the most controversial and divisive cases. This isn't new. The creation of judicial review in Marbury versus Madison was a reflection of Chief Justice John Marshall's ideology. From the 1890s to 1936, the Supreme Court struck down over 200 progressive state, local, federal laws protecting consumers, protecting workers, because of the ideology of the justices. We're all familiar with the Warren Court and its efforts to advance equality and liberty because of the ideology of the justices. The reason, say, Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg so often disagree isn't that one is smarter than the other or one knows constitutional law better than the other. It's about the ideology of the justices. Why is that so? Some of it is that the Constitution is written in very open-ended language. It's equal protection of the law. What's due process? What's cruel and unusual punishment? But also, no right in the Constitution is absolute. The government can always interfere even with a fundamental right or even discriminate based on race if it has a compelling interest. But what's a compelling interest? What's an important interest? What's a legitimate interest? That inevitably comes down to the values of the justices. Well, that's interesting. You know, uh, when I was taking constitutional law back in law school and studying from your book, you know, one of the, uh, one of the things that was instilled to me through my professor was that, you know, the role of the judge and the justice is to follow the law and try to apply the facts to it and try to be as, um, I guess, unbiased in that decision-making process that they can be, you know, not let their personal biases get into that decision. Do you agree with that? I mean, is that the way that the court system ought to work? I mean, ideally. It's impossible. The legal realists taught over a century ago that judges have tremendous discretion. How judges use that discretion is an evidently product of their values. That doesn't mean that there's never instances where the law is clear. Obviously, there are such situations. About a third of the Supreme Court decisions last term were unanimous. And there are many easy cases for the lower courts. But even lower court judges on a daily basis have to decide, what's an unreasonable search or seizure? Or in a constitutional case, what's a legitimate or an important or compelling interest? There's no such thing as law as a brooding omnipresence that's just out there to be discovered. It's always going to be, in so many cases, but the values of who's on the bench. This is an excellent point, and I want to continue with this discussion. Justice Kennedy, um, who retired, at times wasn't necessarily predictable about his values in, in terms of breaking ties and didn't always go the direction you might think that he was going. Would you agree? Actually, I think that Justice Kennedy was quite consistent and more predictable than not. He wasn't predictable in the sense of always being with the conservatives or always with the liberals, but you can look at areas of law and see his consistency. So Justice Kennedy was always with the conservatives in the campaign finance cases, striking down laws regulating expenditures and contributions in elections. 
just as Kennedy was consistently with the conservatives in cases involving separation of church and state to allow more government support of religion and more religious involvement in government. Just as Kennedy was always with the conservatives, say, in the Second Amendment cases that protected more rights of individuals to have guns. On the other hand, Justice Kennedy was always with the liberals with regard to gay and lesbian rights. Every Supreme Court decision in history that's expanded rights for gays and lesbians had its majority of opinion written by Anthony Kennedy. Justice Kennedy was more inconsistent in the abortion area, sometimes voting to allow restrictions on abortion, sometimes voting to uphold and affirm Roe versus Wade. Justice Kennedy was more inconsistent with regard to affirmative action, initially voting to strike it down and then voting to uphold it. Justice Kennedy was more inconsistent with regard to presidential power, sometimes voting to uphold it, like this year in the travel ban case, but sometimes voting to limit it. Like in Bemidian versus Bush in 2008, he wrote the opinion striking down the Military Commission Act and saying that Guantanamo detainees had a right of access to habeas corpus. Well, we're running out of time, and I know you got to get on to your presentation there, Erwin. So I just have one last question before sure. we close it out. Uh, if our listeners, they want to follow up with you, how can they find you online? Oh, sure. My email address is E-C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y, my first initial and my last name, at law.berkeley.edu, or even to make it easier, if anyone goes on the University of California Berkeley Law School website, I'm the only Chemerinsky there. <laughs> okay. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode, but I want to thank my co-host, uh, Kevin Davis, for joining us today, and I want to thank our guest, Erwin Chemerinsky, also for joining us today. It's truly my pleasure, and it's wonderful, especially to get to meet Kevin, who's edited my columns for the last two years, and also to meet you, because we've talked before in these podcasts, but we've never had the chance to meet in person. That, that is true. That is true. You, uh, you have a photographic memory, as I often suspected you did. <laughs> so, well, anyway, I want to also thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.